Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Patty Krawick. Through writing and podcasting, Patty, who is Anishinaabe Ukrainian, explores how we might live differently in the relationships we inherit. She is a co-founder of the Nikanagana and her book, Becoming Kin, an Indigenous Call to Unforgetting the Past and Reimagining Our Future, was published just this past September by Broadleaf Books. She's been very kind with my pronunciations, and I want to thank her and welcome her to the deep dive. How are you, Patty? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to discuss your book, Becoming Kin, because as I was reading the book, it, it was actually quite an emotional journey because I, I felt um, so much of maybe wrestling might not be the right word, but a coming to terms with a, a better understanding of the very complex um, journey that Indigenous people have had once um, coming into contact with um, the colonial settler powers that have taken over the Americas and also your your personal journey in that. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about really the formative ideas of creating Becoming Kin and and how you came to do this work and engage in this history and this future in the way that you have. So I didn't set out to write a book. Mostly what I do is shout about things on Twitter. And I've often said that, you know, like, you know, Christians, because I grew up in the church, you know, in specific, but also Canadians and people in the U.S. in general, really need to kind of look back through their history because we keep acting surprised, you know, by racial turmoil and, you know, conflict. We keep being surprised by it as if it's something that just kind of emerged recently for no particular reason. And, you know, so when you think about where does the story begin, where does the story begin? Every time I tried to follow these threads back to where the stories begin, it wound up taking me right back to how we understand our creation stories and how we emerged as peoples and kind of then thinking through, well, what that meant for Europeans who had a single creation story coming to this world they called new, where we have multiple creation stories. And we were comfortable with that. We were okay with that. We had the Anishinaabe people had no need to insist that the Haudenosaunee agreed with our creation story or that the Lakota, that we had the same creation story. We understood that we emerged as peoples in different ways, but also as kin and as relations. And so uh, what had actually happened was very angry uh, after a sermon that I'd heard that really erased, erased everyone. Uh, you know, it's one of those, what we're all the same in Jesus sermons, you know, no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, whatever. But I don't stop being an Indigenous woman when I walk into a church space. When I walk into any space, you know, when I walk, when I, as, you know, Canadian citizen, any of those things, I don't stop being an Indigenous woman. So what then does that mean? You know, what then, you know, was Paul talking about kind of in the context of what I was angry on? And so 
I worked through that in an essay that Sojourners Magazine published about um, Indigenous identity, about Christians and, and others finding home and safety in a way that made Indigenous peoples profoundly unsafe. And, you know, kind of working through that. And an editor from Broadleaf um, actually approached me and asked if I had ever thought of writing a book. And I said, well, I am now. <laughs> So, because I hadn't been before, but I am now. And so through the course of this book, I kept pulling those threads, you know, where does, where does the story begin? Where does the story begin? Where did things go wrong? And at what points in our relationship could we have made different decisions? Could settlers have made different decisions? And I talked early on in the book um, about Blackness, because like you said, I'm I have a co-host of uh, Medicine for the Resistance, and that's my friend Carrie Goring and I, and she's an Afro-Caribbean woman. You know, and so we have found so many layers of overlap, so many ways that colonization has worked in similar ways, often with different strategies, but, you know, often to the same end. And so I address that very early on in the book, that when I'm talking about Indigenous peoples, what I'm talking about are broad overlapping circles. Um, because, of course, it was Indigenous peoples that were taken from Africa and brought here and disconnected from their land. And, you know, and so that's some of, some of what I'm exploring is also what are races, what are these social categories and really their ways of disconnecting us from land. And so then how do we reconnect? How do we reform these relationships in ways that, in ways that are good for everybody, as opposed to just good for, you know, for, for those ones that are setting up these categories. You know, you, you mentioned in your answer, this, this idea of the creation stories, what they tell us about our values, what they tell us about our culture. And I, I really spent quite a bit of time in, in that section of, of the book. I'm not going to ask my, my questions about that, just they're further down on my page. But I, I do want to spend a little bit of time around, like you said, you introduced the, the concept of Blackness very, very early on, the realities of, of what the the experience was like um, for those brought from Africa here and how we wrestle with some of that. So there's there's that word again. And it made me think about this, this process of becoming kin and how do we become better kin when those, those overlapping circles that you described so eloquently just now in your response and also in the book are, are filled with a lot of pain mm -hmm. and also I'll say manipulated in order to better serve the colonial project. Yes. You know, how does one become kin and then become better kin given those, those circumstances that I've just laid out? Well, because we are kin, right? It's like, you know, we said, you know, we should exist in, well, we do exist in relationship, even, you know, settler colonialism exists in relationship to land. It's just a, consumptive and exhausting relationship. Uh, so it's about becoming better kin, but becoming kin sounded nicer. So, <laughs> well, there's a niceness about kinship, right? There's kind of, the, there's a reciprocity, but we all have those kin that we don't want to claim, you know, those ones that we'd rather not think about. But to your question about that kind of broad overlapping circle and where we've been pulled apart, you know, so when the colonists first kind of sat down and and brought you know and, and brought enslaved Africans over. The eastern tribes, there was a lot of collaboration that went on. You know, hiding of runaway slaves in Beloved. Um, you know, she remembers that when you you know uh, twenty you know when she's writing Beloved, 
she remembers that relationship and it was, you know, and she included it in the book where Paul D runs away. And so after the removals, when the U.S. then set about to settle the West, they brought in the Buffalo soldiers so that our meeting would be, so that the meetings with the Plain tribes would be under much different circumstances. We would not have an opportunity to form collective reciprocal relationships. We would see each other as a threat, you know, and, you know, and, and I talk about this, you know, in the book and, and on Twitter that when you make, when you tie land to whiteness, so you had to be white in order to own land, Indigenous people had land set aside for them. But at that time that this was happening, Black people were not permitted to own land. And so if tribes had Black relatives, it diminished our land base to acknowledge those Black relatives. And so we didn't. And tribes are still dealing with the concept. I think it was the free, that the freedmen only recently within the last few years won um, you know, some important citizenship rulings for tribes that they belong to. So these are things, you know, and these are conversations and things that we need to have amongst ourselves, a way that we can belong together. Because if we can get past these kind of colonial manipulations, as you put it, then then we're unstoppable. <laughs> you know, then they can't, you know, they can't continue imposing things on us if we're, and you see that throughout history. Um, you know, right from harboring runaway slaves up until, you, you know, through the American Indian movement and the civil rights movement worked together. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter formed relationship, you know, with Indigenous Act. And you see that happening. And then you see government response, you know, trying to, you, you know, put, you, you know, recreate those barriers and push us apart again. And so I think it's very important to, you know, for us, and that's part of the podcast, um, you know, that Carrie and I have is kind of working through these things in relationship. And sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes she makes mistakes. And either us or our guests will push back against those things. And because it's a podcast, we can't just say, oh, that's awkward, and then turn to go talk to somebody else. We have yeah. to push through. You know, we have to push through that conversation. I, you, you know, there's a few times where there's been some awkward silence. But we have to push through because we're recording. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so then we have to have those conversations. And so many, I mean, like this book could not have happened without that relationship with Carrie and, and all these conversations that we have had um, because it shaped so much of my thinking on how we think of ourselves as Indigenous peoples, as displanted peoples, as peoples whose movement was forced in different ways. And then, you know, thinking about also immigrants and refugees, people whose Arrival here is due to climate change or due to wars that have been provoked by the U.S. all over the place. So those layers of kinship are different. There's absolutely a, a lot of these, like you mentioned, these overlaps, right? And how we balance them and manage them and live through them is always quite complicated. One of the things that really, really stuck out for me is the book in its in its subtitle and its sub. And the, the, the second title of the book, you know, which I'll, I'll read again as I lead into the question, you know, an indigenous call to unforgetting the past and reimagining our future, right? And and why that really stuck out to me is because there's a there's a massive mental shift that feels like has to happen, right? Where when I see unforgetting, it's almost like, is this really an opportunity to? know in the first place right because so many people don't know these these histories they don't 
understand them or they're not properly contextualized. And so how do you think about that, the unforgetting and also the reimagining? Like it clearly was a purposeful decision to include that as the subtitle of the book. So kind of take me through a little bit of that. Well, unforgetting is a term that I came across in an interview with uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz in the Upping the Ante Journal, where she talked about the, the unforgetting coming from the Greek. So the opposite of truth is forgetting. So unforgetting is a way of uncovering that truth. Because although some of this information, and you know, and I hear this from, you know, from a lot of people who've read the book was, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know particularly in Canada around, you know, residential schools, you know, we didn't know and, you know, in the graves of the, of the children, we didn't know, but yes, you did because it was in the truth and reconciliation report. And that was a really big deal when that came out. There's a whole chapter on that. You know, it's one of the calls to action. It's mentioned in the executive report. You mean, you didn't even read that little part. And so when the, this forgetting is a decision by the state to create a particular narrative of Canada and the U S you know, Canada, the good, right? You know, the, you know, the U.S. is kind of this melting pot and welcoming all the, all, you know, all the refugees from everywhere, a nation of immigrants, which it totally is not, you know, and Canada is Canada, the good, right? Canada, you know, we're not, we're not the U.S. You know? <laughs> so we're good. And we're we're good. the crazy neighbor to the South. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all of this myth-making just really kind of covers up. It gives, it gives a veneer of innocence, you know, to the white settler who just wants to be like Daniel Boone and conquer, you know, the wilderness. But it also gaslights all the Black and Indigenous peoples who know better because our historians and journalists and oral histories contain all of this. And so when we say this and that happened and our broader society says, what are you talking about or is surprised by it? How then do we grieve these losses? How can we grieve these losses and move forward, you know, even have a future if we're not permitted to grieve because the source of our grief is unacknowledged? And so by unforgetting, by collectively recognizing this history that's in their own archives, it's in their own records, it's in our histories, it's in our records. So by unforgetting, uncovering the truth, investigating the stories we were not told, we can grieve the losses. They can grieve their own losses because that takes a toll on them as well. White also disconnects them from land, disconnects them from relationship and each other. And then once we have done that, then we can move forward into a future. I mean, the future's coming, right? Now, you know, I talk about the eighth fire, the seventh and eighth fires as well. The future is coming, but it's what kind of world do we want to build? What kind of world do we want for ourselves to grow old in, for our grandchildren to grow up in? What kind of world do we want to build? Because we're building something. <laughs> it's being built. And and I want to use that point about the future. You know, what I and many others, I, I always make future plural, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's viable futures, plural, that, that we can uncover. And when I think about the Indigenous experience, and, and this is someone from that is, I'm clearly not indigenous, right? So um, I'm thinking about this from a cultural perspective, from a historical perspective. It it seems like it is from the outside, there's many people, I'll just use the United States as an example, that they honestly don't think indigenous people exist in, in the sense that to whatever extent they might be familiar with the indigenous, it's likely through some sort of pop culture imagining of that 
Maybe it's through a casino in more modern context. But a lot of folks just, it's almost like when I hear them talk about or think about Indigenous, it's like this these group of people that used to exist. Mm-hmm. And they no longer exist. Like They used to exist, but they're no longer here. To whatever, and to some extent, there might be a few, but it's still a few. And so, when you when you have that as your frame, and you're thinking about the future, it's likely that you're not going to include those people's perspective in that future because you just don't think there's that many of them, right? So, how do you think about or challenge that notion of erasure, invisibility, as it connects to indigenous, with also a corresponding culture shift I see out there, which is to fetishize indigenous, you know, where they're kind of talked about in this mysterious, mystical way. We have so much to learn. But then, like I've been in, I went to a, a conference as an example that was in May, I think, or maybe it was early June, talking about all this new stuff we're going to do and all about the future. No real diversity in, in there. Indigenous were kind of talked about again in this kind of mystical, ancient way. And so I'm living in these spaces watching primarily white people do this, right? So I'm curious about how you think about those two kind of currents, invisibility and erasure on one side, and then sort of this fetish on the other. Early on in the podcast, we talked about Daniel Heath Justice, and we were talking about looking for Indigenous people in the future. And I've talked about this with Lee Francis as well. And you're like, where are we? Where are we in the future? Did we survive? (laughs) Are we not there? (laughs) Did we all die? Like, what happened? Because so often, like you say, like, you know, in books and television in the future, we don't exist. We're not there. It's a largely white future. And then, you know, in that we were traveling through the American Southwest and our tour guide, was showing us, you know, the cliff dwellings. And he was like, you know, where did they go? And he's a Navajo Ute man. And, you know, he said, where did they, and he was really playing up how the mysterious vanishing of the Anasazi people. And then he, you know, breaks character because he'd been doing it in this kind of theatrical kind of way. And we're all eating it up, right? Because he's a tour guide, so he's good at this. And he says, like, people move. Have you not been to Detroit? <laughs> and of course, everybody laughs. And, you know, and I, I've seen tour guides do this in other places too, because yeah, it's this idea that we existed back in some mythical past. And that if our descendant, if those descendants still exist, we're not really indigenous because, and you hear people say this part out loud, we're not really indigenous because we're using cell phones and we're hunting with guns and we're, you know, so we're not living like real indigenous people. Maybe on the res, they still do, but urban Indians, you know, we've all assimilated and we're not, you know, so we're not. And that's a big part of the American psyche, you know, the, you know, you broadly throughout the Americas is this erasure of indigenous people versus the hypervisibility of blackness and hypervisibility of blackness really is not like the opposite of indigenous erasure because it's just as precarious and just as dangerous. It's not. It's not like, yay, you're being seen. <laughs> you know, like this hypervisibility is also dangerous. You know, so I just want to make that clear to listeners. But both of them work to keep us out of white spaces, right? So the hypervisibility of blackness keeps black, you know, keeps black people out of particular neighborhoods, out of jobs, out of certain stories. The erasure of indigenous people erases us from the land. It makes the land free for the taking. You know, because if we're not there, then you can keep developing, you can keep extracting, you can keep 
you know, doing all of these things. I was just, you know, thinking about the national park system and how I have to pay admission to the national, like that's baloney. That's my traditional territory. Why should I have to pay to exist on my own land? And yet, you know, so you displace all the indigenous, indigenous people and then you hire us back to do cultural events. Like that's nonsense. <laughs> so, so it's, so, and that's really the first task of the book. Each chapter ends with a task. And the very first task is to notice, to look for us. Where are we? Mm. Are we only the people who need help? Are we only the people with a plight? Because, of course, Indigenous people, we always seem to have a plight. Um, you know, so are, do we yeah. only have a plight that needs you to help us and to fix us? No, we fix us. We save us. But you got your own work to do, you know, as, as you know, the, you know, speaking broadly to settlers. Um you know, so that it's that noticing and notice us in the future. Do we exist in the future that you imagine? Where are we, and what's our role? Yeah, and it's 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 interesting when you when you mentioned uh, the hyper visibility of of black people because I was having a conversation. I don't know why we were on this topic, but I remember there was a, I believe it was the New York Times. This is like a few years ago where they did one of these polls asking white people questions, right? Like, you know, basic questions that one would think are, are pretty standard, like, hey, what's the, what percentage of the population of the United States is black, right? It was, it's something very basic like that. And, you know, I know that that number's 12, 13%, you know, some, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But their, their numbers were like wildly inaccurate. Wow. Like where they were like, oh yeah, 50%. It's like 50%, right? Like, you know, <laughs> they, they ain't that many of us here, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and so it, it does work in this this odd way because it it hyper, it makes them hypersensitive to your presence, particularly when there's a wiring that you're already kind of taken over or that mm-hmm. you get too much or there's too much emphasis. So it's mm-hmm. like, hey, you're there's just as much of you as there's of me. Like, why are we still talking about you? Mm-hmm. Right. It's like yeah. uh not that way. So it's 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 interesting how, like you said, they're not in 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 conflict with one another, but they're operating to kind of still center the the white story. Yeah, whatever the white need is, because there's times when, like you say, the fetishizing. You know, beca- we become hyper visible. You know, particularly around big celebrations like Canada Day and whatever. It's all about like bringing out the indigenous people and saying, "Look how diverse and accepting we are." And it's like we're just being used as decorations. That's not. That's not very diverse and inclusive of you to turn us into decorate. And so there are times when that's what serves whiteness. And, you know, so it's always in terms of what makes, you know, Canadians and, and, you know, USians feel more secure in this identity they've created for themselves. And that's really a very, I mean, I don't really want to center whiteness again, but like it really hasn't done white poor people any favors. (laughs) they're not experiencing all of this uplift all these promises like the book i talk about the grapes of wrath and all of these promises that the u.s makes that it has no intention of keeping but it keeps people under control it gives us you know what maybe and you know for indigenous peoples it's often very much well if we fit in because you know it's we're very fashionable right now (laughs) as indigenous people we're very (laughs) fat particularly in canada Uh, you know we're very fashionable right now you know, and so there's all these opportunities to fit in, but it fit in into what? Fit into what and to what end? And so that's what I'm constantly, you know, interrogating right now and, you know, kind of through the book is to what end? To what end are we trying to fit in? And should we maybe be building something else? Let's build something else. I've really moved from let's burn it all down to 
they're going to burn themselves down. Let's build something else. <laughs> yeah. That fighting that inclination to burn things down is is hard sometimes. Like I was, I was on a call this morning and I and I told them when I go into meetings, I tell them like I'm coming in here with Nat Turner energy, and to the extent <laughs> to the extent that that folks don't know who Nat Turner is, once they Google him, they get a very good sense of what I'm talking about. Right. That's so right. Right. the the machetes are at the ready, but <laughs> I want to go a little bit more into that thread around knowing. And the the idea that we're all trying to know what we are to a certain extent. And I'm still working through this a little bit. So this is going to be sort of mm-hmm. half ramble, but there I promise there's probably a question coming somewhere okay. in there. Because because I wrote down all these different notes and I started, I jotted down literally like the idea of knowing biology, indigenous kinship, blackness, like a lot of, you know who we are and what we claim as an identity is in these classifications, mm-hmm. right? Like famously, there's the one drop, right? Mm-hmm. Got one, one drop of black blood, you're black, right? And you have all these different, you know, things that when I was growing up, people would make jokes about, right? So these are not terms I'm throwing around to offend anybody, but just talking among your folk, people would use all kinds of terms, mulatto, quadroon, octoroon, you know, these were things in books and we would all kind of take those and, joke around. Well, these were legal categories, right? People forget yeah, that. Yeah, these were the one these were real categories. Was a legal thing in Virginia and it had the Pocahontas exception. So one drop of native blood and you were still white, but one drop of black blood and now you're black. You know, and and I, I bring that up in the book too that it's really important that people remember these are legal categories. And Indian is still a legal category in Canada and the US. It's still like I have I, my son calls it our race card. I, still, I have my status card that proves I'm Indian. You know, and that's nonsense. I know white women who have a status card, too, because of the way the laws, you know, because of the way it went out. So, yeah. So it's and I think one reason it's hard to kind of get a grip on identity is because it is so changeable. Every time we think we get a grip on it, whiteness changes it to something that suits it better. And 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 that's what I'm always trying. Like we we started a little bit of this before we started recording, right? This idea of race as a social construct, right? And I, I mentioned um reading Racecraft and the impact that book had on me, where the 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 two authors were literally named it that because they were like race is like witchcraft it's this superstitious thing that we now move in our world trying to manage but what like what truth is in it is largely constructed truth right so as i was reading your book and you talked about the these sort of blood class classifications around who's indigenous, who isn't, it it reminded me so much. And you do reference the one drop rule and how we manage and navigate all of these things. And then it it made me think about, and this was where the kin part comes in, with all of these different threads, how do we navigate through the kinship, right? When When the classifications are used to help, in my mind, they're largely used to divide. Yes. Right? Yeah. So how do we kind of wrestle with all of these things, right? It's biology, but it's not. It's legal and it and that legality changes. It's social, but the socialness shifts depending on where you are, right? Like how do you kind of go through some of that? Yeah. Well and when people say, oh, you know, race is you know, it's a social construct, 
they often use it, and you're not using it in this way, but I often hear it being used in this way of, oh, well, and then that makes it meaningless. So no, marriage is also a social construct. Money is a social construct. Mortgages are so, these are things are all social and they have deep meaning in our lives. You know, credit score is like this made up thing and yet it has a deep impact on our life. And so race too, but people don't stay in tidy racial categories, right? Like they get married, (laughs) you know, they get sexually assaulted, you know, they, you know, like all, all kinds, all kinds of things happen. And so when you're trying to categorize people, whatever system you use, you're going to have to codify it in some way because otherwise it's just going to blur. And I think we need to, one of the exercises that I have in the book is to kind of do a family tree and look through all the different relations that you have inherited. And that's how I introduce myself in the book is the different relations that I have inherited. And then to see these as nodes of connection rather than impurities. The book that I'm reading right now about race, um, he, uh, the chapter I'm in right now is focusing a lot of, on Kant and how he basically created our current race system. And of course, the, this idea of purity, you know, and blood purity. And it always makes me laugh because when you think of blood purity, that gets us, you know, to European nobility in the Middle Ages when it was full of inbreeding and you know, <laughs> genetically inherited yep. disorders. I was like, so it doesn't get us anywhere good. <laughs> it gets us just like yep. some pretty grotesque they, they love a eugenics project <laughs> yeah yeah so but we internalize these ideas because we want to be indigenous we want to be black we want to be white we want to be these things that somehow make sense to us and yet like my mom is german ukrainian my mom is white my dad is indigenous what am i well my experience my social experience despite having been raised by uh, you know by my white maternal family was fully indigenous in terms of feeling excluded and not within my family, but socially in terms of having people expect things of me that I didn't know how to give them in terms of that, even that that disconnection, thanks to child welfare scoops, even that disconnection is a 100% indigenous experience. You know, so it's thinking relationally rather than about categories, rather than what category I fit into thinking relationally and who are all these relationships I have inherited And then what responsibilities or opportunities do those relationships then create for me? And sometimes my ancestors' community is not my community. Like I have an ancestor who is Irish. The Irish community is not my community, but that's okay. It doesn't have to be. I can still act in solidarity with Irish political goals in Ireland. I can still act, you know, I can honor Isaiah in that way. And, and so, you know, do what I can to support political um, organizing in Ireland or you know, other communities, not necessarily my communities, but I can honor those ancestors and those relationships by forming relationships of solidarity with the current community. How do we work together to build that world that is better for everybody, that takes us to a good place where the grass is green and lush rather than that dark place where it's black and cuts our feet? which we yeah. see after every forest fire. Absolutely. And these these categories, they do come with, you know, like I kind of keep coming back to this, this notion that, you know, people will claim these categories for what they perceive as value to themselves, right? Whether it's a um, African-American experience or an indigenous experience or a Latino experience. And there there is this realness of whiteness borrowing what what isn't theirs for their for their own purpose 
And so I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, thoughts on, on that portion of it, you know, not expecting you to like have an opinion on every person who's done this, but I mean, obviously there've been, there's been folks who have, who have like just my Twitter perusal. I, I see people who are like, oh, they claim that they were a black scholar and turns out they're not right. Oh, this person says they were indigenous. They infiltrate these communities. Then they're not right. Mm-hmm. And that works so much to the to the detriment of building true community. Mm-hmm. But we're also using categories in order to suss out who is and who isn't, right? So it's like, it's good <laughs> when people are posers, but it's also like still weird sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's a lot of drama right now over Sashi Littlefeather because, you, you know, the maker of the list has declared that she is not uh, Yaki. And yet there's Yaki people who are saying, actually, she is part of our community. We don't care about your stupid list. <laughs> you know, and, it's and so, odd, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, so there's lots of drama right now on Native Twitter about what it is to be Indigenous. And I think for us, it's so much more helpful to think in terms of relationship, you know, to kind of get our heads out of these categories, which nobody really fits into neatly. And to think about relations. And so when somebody is claiming, you know, you know, there've been others that have been outed recently. And so when they're claiming relations, they're claiming, claiming horizontal relations with a, with a community and with other individuals. And it's for that community and those other individuals to say that yes or no, yes, this person really is a part of our community or no, they're not. But they're also claiming a relationship with the state that isn't theirs, right? And Aurora Levins Morales, uh, who I, I talk about early, I quote early in the book, she talks about uh, lineages of oppression and lineages of being the oppressor. And we always want to claim those lineages of oppression, right? It's a move to innocence. We don't want to be guilty of displacement. We don't yeah. want to be guilty of owning, Absolutely. you know, of our ancestors owning slaves and build, you know, on our wealth coming from from enslavement, you know. So we want to claim those, even if it's just that one drop. You know, we want to we want to claim that lineage of oppression. And yet what she points out. So she's talking about her own ancestors and that her own ancestors, um, I believe it's her maternal side, had been slave owners. And of course, the family myth was always and the you know, indigenous peoples, you know, the five so-called civilized tribes were also uh, slaveholding tribes, which I think is one of the things that made them civilized was kind of gross. You know, so we, you know, so it's this idea that, you know, we were good slave owners. We were kind to our slaves. And Aurora says, like, this is nonsense. Like, there is no kindness in slavery. I don't care how nice you were to them. There's no, there's no kindness in slavery. And then she says, you know, so I inherit that lineage. I inherit those relationships, but I become an abolitionist. I become an activist working for liberation and freedom. And so I can own my ancestors' history and I can transform it. And how profoundly hopeful is that as an individual, as a community, as a country to own these histories of oppression. And like, you know, so for myself, my grandparents found safety on land that had been cleared of Mississauga Anishinaabeg so that white farmers could settle. My grandparents came in the 50s, so they were, you know, 200 years after after the process, but they were still the beneficiaries of Indigenous displacement. You know, so then what do I do with that? Because I grew up in the, also as benefiting from the displacement of the Mississauga people. So then what is then my relationship with the Mississauga? Because I'm Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, we're kind of large 
umbrella, but kind of, you, you know, the Mississauga Anishinaabeg language is not exactly the same. It's a little bit different. So then how do I make sure that I am not actively participating in ongoing displacement? How do I then bring Mississauga Anishinaabeg back to the table in terms of decisions that organizations I'm part of are making? How do I make sure that I'm not part of pushing them further to the edge? You know, I'll, you know so it, it's about thinking through the, all of these lineages, not trying to turn away, because I'm not guilty of it. I don't have to feel shame for it, but it's a relationship I've inherited. And so what can I do today to make sure that those things I've inherited are not persisting? I can't, I, maybe I can't stop it, but I can, mm-hmm. I can do something and I can organize cooperatively with others to make sure that we're not actively part of this anymore. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to keep going on, on the relationship side of things, right? Because you mentioned <clears throat> very astutely that there we're in all of these different relationships, not just with each other, but with institutions, um, with the socialization of how our, our culture works. And, and what I mean by that is, again, this way that we think about our histories, the way we think about our our place in the world, whether it's a tied tied to geography or or otherwise, and what what comes up quite often in these histories, in these stories, is this relationship with the idea of being replaced. Right? We we see this as part of um, white supremacist language of that they're going to be replaced, their replacement theory, but the reality of indigenous replacement and erasure and genocide is very different, right? Because their their notions exist in fantasy. It's almost like they're reflecting the violence that they inflict. They imagine it back on themselves um, as compared to the reality of, of what happened, what has happened historically to indigenous and um, enslaved Africans as through the Middle Passage. So I'm, I'm curious about, as we you know, remember, unforget these stories, how do we place that very firmly in the center of the conversation? Because when when I read these stories about, um, you know, children's murders in, in these schools um, in, in Canada, but also here, I know this stuff and it's still horrifying, mm-hmm. right? And I find that still most people don't don't know these stories, right? And it's um it's tied to so many things that we view as innocuous, right? This even the other day I, I read a, a quick story in the New York Times, um, which you you might have seen about how Russian families are taking in Ukrainian children, mm-hmm. right? And that's another genocidal erasure, mm-hmm. right? Like we can't be fighting a war against people who don't exist in a way, right? This sort of Putin-esque language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of jumbling a lot of stuff together, but I want to get your thoughts on how these stories become part of the unforgetting, because it seems like we're make we're doing them again in in yeah. different contexts. Yeah. Well, the the movement of children from one people to another people is part of the Convention on Genocide, and, and I actually lay that convention right in the book to show how these different things that have happened whether they happened before the convention was was enacted or long afterwards, it meets the criteria, you know, it meets, you know, so many of these things. And I think, you know, how do we, you know, so how do we bring it forward? First off, 
you know, as we're doing, we're talking about it, we're noticing it, we're paying attention, but then we connect those dots for other people, you know, on whatever platform we've got, right? Whether you're a preacher and, you know, and you, you know, and your text for the day is on the Babylonian captivity and you can say, you know, about, you know, the Jews being marched into Babylon and you can say, just like we did with the Trail of Tears, we did this, you know, as a, as a church, as, you know, you, you know, USians, we, we did this. We also, just as Babylon, we also, mar- you know, you could, as a preacher, you can put that into your sermons. As a teacher, you can look at current events that are happening and connect those dots because we tend to see history as something disconnected from us. It's a thing that happened back then. It's not connected to what's having happening now. And like, so my grandmother, my maternal grandmother lived to be a hundred years old and she was born in, I think, 1920, which means she had from her parents firsthand accounts of the Russian revolution because she was, you know, in, in the Ukraine. So she, so that's my connection. I got secondhand accounts of the Russian revolution. That's not that, which makes it not that long ago. Right. You know, th- on my paternal family, I've got firsthand accounts of residential schools. I've got firsthand accounts of land, you know, you know, secondhand accounts of land, you know, kind of being pushed onto reservations as opposed to being able to travel broadly in northwestern Ontario. I've got first, you know, I'm hearing firsthand, account- you know, they got firsthand accounts of that. That's not that far away it, within the black community. I know you have elders who have heard firsthand accounts of slavery. So it's not that long ago. You know, we, I saw a meme saying that Anne Frank, Barbara Walters, and um, Martin Luther King were all the same age. And yet we see them in three very different eras of history as if they were disconnected. And so I think for us, whatever platform we have, whether it's our little family book club, or we're teachers or podcasters or preachers or just shouting on Twitter, it's important to connect those dots for people as we unforget, as we unpack this truth. It's really important to connect all those dots and be really tiresome about it. You know, like when somebody says, ooh, that thing Putin is doing is really terrible. Say, yes. And the last residential school in Canada closed in 1998. <laughs> That's how recent the movement, you know, the 60s scoop became the millennium scoop. We are still moving Indigenous, you know, Black and Indigenous children into white families. And what does that tell them about their own families and how dangerous their families and communities are if the only place they can be safe? is in a white neighborhood. What does that tell our kids about who they are? Uh, you know, and, isn't and, that dangerous? Isn't that profoundly dangerous? <laughs> and I and I jokingly say this, but you know, let's think about like Arnold Jackson in different strokes, right? Like we we literally had a a pop culture moment yes. in the United States where it was like we mined the idea of of white families adopting black children for like jokes, right? Like, you know, we yeah. we had different strokes. We had Webster. It was just like, you know, normal yeah. to just kind of tie this idea that look, this makes sense. And I, I forgot it was some comedian who was like, I'm gonna get so rich. It was a black comedian. He was like, I'm gonna get so rich, I'm just gonna start adopting white kids. <laughs> right. Like, you know, if we if we created a world where that was the opposite, I think people wouldn't know what to do with themselves, right? If if Denzel Washington today announced that he and his wife were adopting like two little white kids from like Appalachia, people would like <laughs> lose their people would lose their mind, right? Like it's it's so absurd, we can't even think about it. Right. Yeah. But if Leonardo DiCaprio today was like, oh, I'm going to adopt like two white, two black kids from here or Zaire or wherever, we'd be like, oh, okay, Leo. Well, look you're at settling Angelina. down. 
right? Look at Angelina yeah. collecting her little UN of children. And everybody's like, oh, she's so great. And it's like, hmm. Yeah, she's a humanitarian. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But the other way around, it's so crazy. It's literally like it's a joke, yeah. right? Like we can't even fathom the other side, which I, which is, I always, you know, think about. And it's weird to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, when I was studying social work, I had this prof who, you know, and it's a largely white classroom because it's like, you know, private Catholic university. And he's saying, you know, so imagine what it's like to, you know, at, you know, for you to go into a room, you know, kind of full of, full of black people. How do you feel? And people are like, oh, you know, who's that scary? Because I wouldn't know, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you know, and so now imagine what it's like, you know, for a black person to walk into a room full of white people. And they're thinking that this is an empathy exercise. And so they're like, oh, must be like really uncomfortable and blah, blah, blah. And the, those of us, you know, in the back, of, you know, who are a little darker, kind of looking at each other. And he looks at them and says like, no, that's Tuesday. Like, that's just life. <laughs> you know, that's just life. Like, we know how to navigate white spaces because we don't have any options. That's yeah, just, no choice. That's just life. But they don't know how to navigate our spaces. And so then they come to activities that are like, you know, they come to powwows, you know, they come, they come to things like that, which is fine. I, and I, in the book, I tell people that they should, but they come as tourists. They come, like they make the first step, their last step. That's the only way that they see us. And the only way they see us then is as this tourist spectacle. Like Tate Walker once said, you know, everybody wants to dress up like an Indian princess for Halloween. Why don't they want to dress up like an Indian doctor or an Indian politician? Like, we're not all princesses. Yeah. But they get this, you know, to Absolutely. your earlier point about this kind of fetishization, they get this weird idea of who we are. And it gets validated through the ways that we perform. But they don't come any further they don't come any further and see us running these, you know, multi-million dollar organizations like, you know, friendship centers or in, you know, urban Indian centers. They don't see us as political agents and they don't see us as political agents who often disagree with each other. You yeah. know, like my, you know, you know, like my dad will sometimes say, you know, we need to speak with one voice. I'm like, why? What the Ojibwe Anishinaabe need in Northwestern Ontario is not the same thing as what the Mi'kmaq need out East is not the same as what the Chilcotin need out West which is why some of these broad terms are so unhelpful. Indigenous people as a broad group don't, we need certain principles availed to us in terms of sovereignty, the right to say no, you know, consultation doesn't mean anything if you can't say no. But individually as nations, we need the right to, to make our own decisions and to sometimes disagree. But our disagreement is seen as some kind of flaw and yet white people disagree about stuff all the time. Every two years, you guys are blowing yourself, you know, you know, the US is, you guys are, you know, going bonkers over, you know, which monster is better to elect. Disagreement among white people is normal and fine and part of the political process. Somehow disagreement around, about, but, you know, between us or internally, that's somehow some kind of betrayal. And it's like, no, we have to disagree or we're not going to sort things out. We're not going to figure out how to navigate these relationships if we're never allowed to disagree. And if we're afraid of making mistakes, we're never going to navigate these relationships because we are going to step wrong. Because as you said at the beginning, we have been manipulated by colonialism to think certain things and to suspect certain things. So relationships are messy, but they're a much better way forward than continuing on in our silos as if all we need to do is fit in better. It's the fear of, um, what, did it, what did we always say? Can't air our dirty laundry. Yes, right. yes. Can't, can't but, air your can't air your dirty laundry in front of the white folks. <laughs> that's right. But then we wind up protecting predators. Absolutely. You know, like we're afraid to name our predators because of either the scarcity model, well then who's going to speak the language and know the ceremony, or we don't want the white people to think that we're all like this because they've already but they've already constructed us to be all like that anyway, so who cares? Let's just Yeah, it doesn't like <laughs> 
It's not like they're going to hear this piece of news and be like, oh, I always knew they wow. were shifty. Yes. Like, right? no, they already think we're shifty. <laughs> you know, they already think yeah. like there's no reason to, you know, kind of pander to whiteness and make them think the best of us because they don't. So who cares? Yeah. It's yes. liberating, really, when you when you realize yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. We could just do our own thing. Right. right. Um, they, think, you know, they, they assume what they assume anyway. So why are we trying to pander to some, you know, kind of better ideal? They don't they don't have that anyway. So let's just let's just get our own shit done. You know, I want to I want to ask you about this. You mentioned in the book this notion of this hunger, which which I connected very quickly, as I often do, to the extractive nature of um, capitalism, right? And you used um, Wendigo as an example yeah. of that, right? And it it made me think of a book that I read a few years ago called Wetco, kind of just describing this notion of this sickness that basically is inhabited by colonial settlers, right? Like they just have this rapacious need to conquer and destroy, which I liken to the Wendigo hunger mm -hmm. idea, right? And so with, without being too like reduced, reductive in, in the reasoning, I want to get a sense for how do we, to the extent that we can, are we consistently dealing with just perspectives that are not in relationship to one another, right? Like mm. if you are in a wet go, when to go frame, that's just how you see the world. Everything is a threat, mm -hmm. right? Everything is an other. And then there's another perspective that sees the world differently, right? Are we just in an ideological, you know, distinct way of viewing the world? Or is there a reconciliation that can happen that reduces the harm from, you know, all these hungers, which to me are just capitalism. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that chapter on the wedding go, and there is a convention that you're not supposed to say the name, that you'll call it into being, but I really think that ship has sailed. <laughs> I think that ship's kind of like, like Candyman or Beetlejuice. Yeah, Beetlejuice. Yeah. I really believe that ship has sailed. <laughs> You know, so, and, you know, but there are some people I just want to acknowledge that still hold to that convention pretty strongly. And so I, I actually rewrote that chapter uh, because so often we do talk about politicians and capitalists, uh, you know, as, as this, as this monster. And it occurred to me after coming across a couple of other books and, and thinking it through that we aren't the ones who infected them, that we, so yes, the hunger arose in us, and there are lots of story, uh, stories in, in, you know, the Anishinaabe tradition that kind of speak to, you know, the, the greed, the overconsumption, the, you know, being in poor relation, being careless, you know, with, with, with our relatives. And these things are always resolved in some way. There's some, you, you know, we find, you know, cultural protocols, cultural, um, cultural norms that then mitigate against this hunger, like the giveaway, for example. Uh, the giveaway in uh, a lot of indeed or the potlatch on the West Coast would be a really good example of that, where you get, literally give away everything to celebrate an event because you know that your community will take care of you. You can give everything away because your community, somebody else is going to have a giveaway and you're going to get things back. You know, you're, oh, you will always have what you need because your community has your back. So there's no need to hoard because there's no benefit to it. And also your community will be mad at you and possibly ostracize you because now you're hurting them. And so this kind of 
you know, living in living in in community, the giveaway, which of course was made illegal by the colonists um, when they came, and so that's where I talked about the hungers rising in Europe. I kind of reshaped that chapter and talked about the hungers rising in Europe, and talking about the witch hunts and Sylvia Federici. Uh, in her book, Caliban and the Witch, where she talks about, she connects the witch hunts with capitalism. So, you know, you're very correct that these hungers are tied, the encouragement of the hungers, let's put it that way, the encouragement of the hungers, because I think that hunger exists, that our story of the way to go predates colonization. But we had way, we built in ways to mitigate that. So do we encourage this hunger? Capitalism is the encouragement of that hunger. And the, you know, the hunger to to hoard and to acquire and to eliminate anybody who stands in your way, like the Wedigo who eats, you know, who consumes people or, you know, the Europeans who literally burned people, you know, know, burned women to get them out of the way, you know, and to, you know, kind of eliminate these reciprocal, you know, these relationships that they had with, with men in the community to make women scary. And then, course that got mapped onto black and indigenous people now we are the scary ones who need to be eliminated who are magical and mystical right like it's like that hyper hyper visibility the fact that we're magical and mystical just makes us a threat to the christian norm you know to rational christianity it makes us it makes us a, a threat to that something to be converted and changed and so yeah so how do we how do we get away from that well i think even the bible like if you want to be christian about it the Bible contains lots of mitigating factors, right? From the year of Jubilee to the early church that was selling everything and, you know, kind of living together in in a good way. But they don't take those lessons. They rather take the lessons from Abraham who got rich and see that as evidence of God's favor when really... It's too much, um, too much Joel Olsten. Yes, too much, (laughs) too much of that. And, you you know, so I, you you know, and not not enough of of sharing and, and horizontal relationships you know we're, we're still yelling for a king i guess you know you can put it that way you know yeah. still yelling you know we want that upward mobility we imagine i forget who said it now but americans see themselves as, as temporarily embarrassed millionaires you know they don't want to tax yeah. the wealthy because someday <laughs> they might be the wealthy and they don't want those taxes you know and yet no you're never going to be like that sorry <laughs> no the prosperity gospel is just another line of fake thinking. Yes. Yeah. Well, that benefits a very certain few, right? And it doesn't even make sense. You, yep. Like, no, we can't all occupy the top layer of the pyramid. There's not enough room up there. There are going to be people who will forever and always occupy those bottom layers. And they deserve a decent life, too. And maybe we don't even shouldn't even have a pyramid. Maybe we should have like a more horizontal way of living. Yeah. People deserve. Yeah. We need we need something different, but it's going to burn out anyway. I think I don't think yeah. we even need to tear it down. I think it's just going to it's just going to burn itself. Like rent, like the basic needs of life are unaffordable. How can a society sustain itself when the basic needs of life are are, on a, are beyond the reach of so many people and increasingly out of reach for people? The society can't sustain itself. Yeah, that's when they that's when that um that popular that good old popular fascism starts to rise once again, right? That's right. That's right. Cuz you got to hang Rear- on. You got it. They got it. They got to hang on. on. And you got it. They got to keep, uh, they got to keep, and, and they will fight just as hard to keep it as they fight, as they fought to got it and we or to get it. Yeah. And we need to remember that when we're looking, when yeah, we're thinking absolutely. about inclusion, when we're thinking about inclusion, we need to think very hard about inclusion into what and at what cost, at what cost, yeah, even to that, our own that, communities, are we seeking inclusion? That unforgetting. Yeah. That unforgetting is, is critical. You know, I want to, we have two segments of the show before we end, but I want to get you out on this because I was thinking about 
this notion of sovereignty and its its deep connection to um, the indigenous story and the physical geographic land that we that we live on, right? And it's been this idea of negotiation, theft, navigation, appropriation, all these tides kind of kind of flowing back and forth. And so much of this was done at the hands of the military. The military was the extended arm U.S. government to enforce these things. And what's so, I'll I'll use my capture of how I think about it. The irritating part of this is that so much of the modern military establishment uses indigenous Native American names as in their weapons of war, right? We have, you know, Apache helicopters and Comanche helicopters and just Tomahawk missiles and just all of these things. And it it makes me think about, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this before we get into the final two segments, is, is that part of that, is it part of how we have reshaped this story to take the resistance of indigenous and now reappropriate it into the very weapons of war that we use around the world, right? Like these were people, yeah, these are the people who fought to protect their land, their way of life, and now their names are splattered across helicopters and missiles and guns to do the same thing to other people. How does that fit into these stories that we're we're telling and how do we get them to not do that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then we'll get well, into I the know, final two segments of this. Yeah, show. well I know a certain uh US football team recently changed its name after a lot of so after a lot of social pressure and other teams are also starting to change their names as a result of social pressure. I mean I think that's like you're right. I mean they take these names and they're like we're honoring you and you know and they talk about how we're you know, they will talk about how indigenous people helped build the U.S. And I was like, no, we didn't. <laughs> no, if you took things from us and then you built with those things. But that doesn't mean that we built the U.S. Yeah, it's <laughs> a weird mean- rhetorical choice. <laughs> yeah. And, and so naming these, you, you know, these instruments of violence. I, I mean, imagine being an indigenous person. I just read a book about um, the wars in El Salvador. And it's an Apache helicopter coming at you. Like, what does that tell you about... Apache people and we're they're dangerous they're scary there's something you know it just I think furthers that fracturing it mythologizes us it erases us we're not real people we're helicopters we're missiles we're but it also plays into that idea that we are dangerous we are weapons you know we're scary that where's the mascot thing came from is we're something to be feared you know we're something to be threatening and that's I mean I don't I don't know how we get rid of those things other than just ongoing social pressure and refusal to participate but Poverty, poverty makes some of those choices impossible. And we join the military, even though, because we see it as a way of gaining access to financial security that we would otherwise not have. One of them, one a politician just recently said, if you give, if you forgive people their student loans, then why will they join the military to get free education? And it's like, wow, that's a heck of a way to put your life at risk for the sake of an education. Like that's, and yet that, so I don't want to put too much burden on on black and indigenous people to to make you know, to, to make these kinds of, of choices because sometimes sometimes we just have impossible choices. There is no sometimes there is no good choice, and I think we need to be gentle yes, with absolutely. each other in that way. Absolutely, I one hundred percent agree. As a not as a 
you know, standing pacifist, but also with lots of people that I respect and love in my life who had to do ROTC and serve yeah. in the military in order to pay for school. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. you know, we give grace where, where we can. Yes, um, exactly. But I still hate, I still hate those yes. names. Yeah, but still an abolitionist, <laughs> but okay, don't become a cop. I will draw my line there. Don't become a cop. There has oh, to be yeah, an option. Absolutely. There has to be another option. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to get us into off the dome and then the drop. And I only have two off the dome questions. Okay. And these are just meant to be kind of fun things. Just the first thing that kind of comes to your mind. And, you know, when I was reading the book, there were a lot, like I said, at the very beginning, there were a lot of emotions that came up in me, even though I'm familiar with a lot of this stuff. It's still, every time I see it in print, it just makes me incredibly angry. Mm -hmm. So it it made me think. What would the world, in your mind, what would the world look and feel like if we couldn't get angry? Couldn't get angry. Yeah, if we couldn't get angry. That 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 emotion is off the table. What does it look and feel like? Better or worse? <laughs> wow. You know what? I think in some ways it might be better because anger is, it's this is my social work background, anger is usually a secondary emotion, right? Mm. And so, so often we feel angry without analyzing why. You know, without thinking that we're angry because we're afraid, we're angry because we've recognized it, you know, because because we've seen something unjust or we're angry because, you, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why we get angry. And so maybe if anger was off the table, we would notice those secondary emotions better. And then we might be able to then mobilize those emotions to take the action that we need to take. Okay, awesome. Um, so my second off the dome question, and that makes a lot of sense to me. So I got to process my anger now. Um, <laughs> you know, if if you can go back in time, um, and it doesn't have to be an academic perspective, even though my mind kind of went to academics, um, but it doesn't have to be. If you can go back in time and pay attention to something that you didn't really pay that much attention to, but now you think is kind of important, what would that be? Like you mean in school, maybe? It doesn't have to be. I went to school when I first thought about it. Like yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my thing was, was language right away. Like I was like, I was a shit language student and I wish now I was better at it. Okay. So I instantly went to like, ah, I should have paid attention in Spanish class. Oh, but okay. um, right. it can be, it could be anything. Well, I'm going to say geography because I recently discovered Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I don't know where she's, where, where I've been all her life, but I, she's a recent discovery for me. I follow, um, you know, an Afro-Indigenous uh, geography professor, um, DeAndre Smiles on Twitter. I had no idea of the possibilities contained within the field of geography, within the study of geography. You know, thinking about migrations and, and land and how land shapes the people who exist on it. So I think I would have paid more attention to geography and done something with it. Maybe not like formally studied it in school, um, but just paid more attention to it and how it connects with our lives. That's a good one. And in, anytime we can mention Ruth Wilson Gilmore on the show, I'm always a big You know what? Her definition of, of racism changed my life. <laughs> it changed the way yeah. I talk about all of this and the way I think about it. It was really, yeah, I had a chance to hear her speak in Chicago um, this past September and I was just fangirling all over the place it was really pathetic yeah she's a <laughs> she's i got a, a long list of those folks that do that <laughs> that do that for me and and she's one of them um arundhati roy is another one that people are sick and tired of me um talking about but i would love to you know 
I always say to myself, oh, you should never meet your heroes and stuff. But I feel like if I had a chance to to have them on, I, I definitely would. That would oh, probably do be it, in, a complete, <laughs> in a complete state of panic, just in preparation alone. It would be like a six month marathon preparation <laughs> to have like an hour long, an hour long conversation with either one of those people. Yeah, yeah, that would be so, so amazing. amazing. But I, I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is an opportunity to just share anything at all for our listeners to kind of get their head around. And I'll go first with a drop that is actually, this is a drop by proxy because it's not really my drop, but I have a, a, a gentleman who listens to the show. I'm going to say his name. I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying it correctly. Eon Higgins. I, so I hope I pronounced the first name right. I'm pretty sure I got the second name right. And he listens to the show and he's been a big supporter. Um, and he mentioned that he might not ever get a chance to be on the show, but he wanted to share a drop with me. So I thought to myself, fuck that, Phil. You should read that drop, right? So, there you go. So I, I want to give a shout out to Ian Higgins for, for listening and, and being a fan of the show. And I hope that I got your first name um, said correctly. And his drop is a show called The Minefield. And it's a radio show out of Australia, which he he describes it as, as breaking down all these really interesting mythological types of stories. And... It sounded like something I would like, so I have to go and find it, and I trust my listeners impeccably. So my drop is via one of our listeners, and again, it's called The Minefield, and it's a radio show out of Australia, and the link for that will be in the show notes because I'm going to find it. And um, so that's that's my drop, and so you're up. I just I just wrote that down because now I because ha- I like listening to radio shows, so I'm going to have to find that. So I have two. Is that okay? Two is more than five. We mentioned Elite Capture. So one is a book and one is a movie. So the one Elite Capture uh, by Taiwo, I hope I say his name correctly. Anyway, it's a short book. So interesting in terms of understanding how hierarchies work and how we are implicitly and complicit in, you know, in, in how these were a fascinating book. But the other one is a little more fun and that's Thor Ragnarok. Um in that conversation with Daniel Heath Justice, where he was talking with us about, um, because I had made a remark about how, you know, you know, Carrie got Black Panther and we got Indian Horse, which is, you know, like this sad residential school story. Um, and I wanted our Black Panther. And Daniel said, well, what about Thor Ragnarok? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, no, it's a great Indigenous story about colonization, about, you know, the, you know, the after effects and, Thor wrestling with what it means to be, you, you, you know, to be an Asgardian, which is essentially a colonizing, uh, a colonizing society. And he said, you know, from an indigenous, it, it's a profoundly indigenous movie. And so then I went back and watched it again. And now I watch this movie like every couple of weeks. Um, I watch it constantly. And so, yeah, so that's my other drop is to, after you've listened to this podcast and you've thought about colonization, to go back and watch Thor Ragnarok again with new eyes. Oh, I, I love that movie. It's Isn't one of it my. So good? It's one of my. Fa- it's so good. It's it's like peak performances all the way around. So I, I second the notion on on that for sure. Those are two really great drops. You know. Well, one's intellectual um, and the other one's just let's apply that stuff and have fun with it now. <laughs> hey, <laughs> because that, I mean, that's I the way this works. We get so caught up in the seriousness of our lives. Right. Like we really do. And we should. We should be thinking about these serious things. Um, but we forget sometimes about joy and about laughing. And sometimes our movements are such joyless places. Like, no wonder nobody wants to come to our meetings. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know and, and we just, you know, so, yeah. So Ragnarok, you know, there's 
a lot of really fun ways that we think and laugh about this stuff. And we have to remember that our movements need joy and need laughter and need, you know, kind of, how do you be in good relationship when you're never having fun together? You got to have fun together, right? That's right. What's that famous quote? You got to, if there's no dancing at this, at this revolution, I don't want to be a part of it. That's right. That's (laughs) right. right. That's right. right. Well, And in terms of tough conversations, they're much easier to have when you have like this well of good relation already built in place. Then when I stumble and we have this great relation of, you know, dancing, whatever, you're far more likely to cut me some slack and explain than you are to turn me away. We have to be gentle with ourselves. That's right. Because we have this big well of good relation. And so, yeah, so we, our our movements need joy. They definitely need joy. I I definitely want to double down on the joy aspect, aspect of all of this work. And this conversation has been a joy. Patty, I want to thank you so much for being on the show with me. This has been an, an amazing ride. I knew it would be. And I, I want to thank you for in, indulging me all along the way. But um, I want to thank you so much for being on the deep dive. Well, thank you very much for having me. I loved it. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.